Ben Franklin once said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Spending a little bit of effort preventing a calamity is usually well worth avoiding a disaster and the cost of cleaning up after it. But did you know that he said that in reference to preventing household fires? Ben Franklin should know. He was the creator of the U.S. fire insurance system. This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Jay Bruns, the Senior Climate Policy Advisor to the Washington State Insurance Commissioner. Over the course of this interview, we will discuss how are global climate risks affecting insurance risks, and how does the insurance sector deal with up-and-coming technology innovations. Now, let us see how a multi-trillion dollar industry responds to global climate change. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lovers of Change podcast. My pleasure, Jimmy. One of my favorite quotes by the writer H.L. Mencken, when he said that there is always a well-known solution to every human problem that's neat, plausible, and wrong. From your point of view, the insurance industry is full of, I think, misconceptions. And what do you think is the biggest misconceptions that others have about the insurance sector? Oh, that's a very good question. I would say that having seen the insurance industry now from the perspective of a consumer of insurance, as well as 12 years with a large insurance company, and now for the last couple of years, from the perspective of the regulator, insurance just generally is a is a way to protect yourself against a possible uh, financial calamity. So I just heard the other day someone saying, well, that they've had insurance for a long time and they don't know that they've gotten their value out of it. In one sense, a consumer of insurance uh, does win if they never have to put in a claim for their insurance because that means that they have been prudent and that the world has treated them relatively fairly so that they've never had to uh, face a financial disaster. And in the meantime, they've gotten the benefit of peace of mind with that insurance. When we start thinking of then climate risks, climate risk is one of those big financial calamities that is an uncertainty for the future, right? That's correct. I think the uh, insurance industry, certainly insurance regulators, and I think individuals are beginning to focus more and more on climate change as a risk and trying to figure out how to protect themselves from the risk of climate change. Let's start talking about frameworks for decision making. When we start thinking about climate risk in general, but specifically climate risk, what is a really good framework to use? One new framework that is very much an international framework for all companies, including insurance companies, is something called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or it's known by its acronym TCFD. And TCFD came out of a uh, move by the group of 20 countries. They said, we're looking for insurance uh, for companies generally and insurance companies also to understand their risks very well. And so they came up with this idea that there should be a framework called uh, TCFD. It's interesting that the people who actually put this framework together were some 32 different investing companies like BlackRock and Bloomberg and HSBC. And they said, well, from our perspective, if companies were to report using a framework like this one, that we would be better able to make financial related decisions on which companies are managing their risk better. So TCFD has has become internationally and also increasingly in the United States, the template that companies are asked to look at in order to manage their own climate risk. And I think what was wise for the people putting TCFD together is not only do they focus on risks, but they included opportunities as part of the risk profile. What do you think of that? 
Yes, exactly. I should say TCFD in some ways is is an outgrowth of a lot of work that has come before it. And I'm thinking of private work like the Carbon Disclosure Project, known as uh, CDP now, and other efforts to try to help companies kind of focus on uh, what risks and opportunities they see from a certain risk, in this case, climate risk. But obviously, TCFD sharpens it and deepens it. To get specific, there's both transition risks and physical risks. The transition risks is the shift to the new climate resilient economy, whereas physical risks is much more of the acute and buildings, structures, equipment, assets. And then opportunities are listed separately, which probably means that you've been able to manage your risks, but able to now take advantage of it from a financial point of view. This is correct. And, you know, I should point out that inside the U.S. insurance regulatory regime, we have been requiring large insurers to report on these risks and opportunities for over 10 years. Uh, Over 10 years ago, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners Climate Change Working Group began to require that large insurance companies that report over $100 million in insurance premium in one year have to report to something called the Climate Risk Disclosure Survey. The eight questions in that survey get to those very issues that you raised. You know, what are the risks and what are the opportunities? And in fact, this Climate Risk Disclosure Survey kind of maps very closely with a lot of the requirements of the TCFD. So it's kind of nice to know that inside the United States for large insurance companies, there's already been a prototype of TCFD that has been a requirement, an annual requirement for the biggest insurers. So when do you think the National Association of Insurance Commissioners came across climate as a critical issue for a regulatory body? I look back to my time in the insurance industry, and already at the very beginning, there was a lot of discussion about severe weather events and how they affected an insurance company's portfolio. Obviously, you know, you have hurricanes and tornadoes and hail events and wildfire. When the climate scientists began to say, look, all of those events are becoming more severe and more frequent then I think insurance companies, the big ones especially, began to pay attention. And the regulators, wanting to make sure that the citizens of the states where they regulate insurance, as well as the companies that operate in their states, remain solvent through this, they have placed more and more attention on this question. Let's look at organizationally. What is the role of the insurance regulator in the insurance business? You've been on both the public side and the private side. How do you see that interaction? I think an insurance regulator's role is to make sure that the people in the state have access to insurance that is at a fair price. That's one that reflects the risk and that the insurance companies that are operating in the state maintain their solvency uh, so that if they are required to pay out or when they are required to pay out, that they have the financial wherewithal to do that. So those are kind of the two big watchwords of insurance regulators, and they stay pretty true to those principles, I will say. And there's really two parts to that insurance business. There's the part that is collecting the premiums underwriting the insurance But then once you're holding on to the financial assets and the cash of the premiums, you're also investing it into the market and into other activities. Does the regulator play a role in the investment side as well? The regulator certainly looks at the investments and makes judgments as to whether or not uh, they believe that those investments are prudent and defensible. So yes, it's not as if an insurance regulator will say to an insurance company, well, we think we don't like these investments and we think you ought to get out of those and into these in terms of specifics, but they might well say, look, we think that your history has proven that you know you want to be careful about the investments that you have and insurers invest, they invest specifically so that they can pay out in claims that they know that they're going to have to pay out in three years time or five years time. So that is a very important part of what insurance regulators do. 
And, you know, when we start talking about financial calamities or any of these risks, some of them are chronic, persistent risks that happen all the time, whereas others are catastrophes. They happen very infrequently, low frequent, high impact events. What are the strategies that insurance companies or risk management companies should take to approach those two situations? Good question. I will point out, uh, for example, to give you some a sense of how topical these questions are. I was looking at the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. This is the overarching body for all state insurance commissioners in the United States. It puts out a newswire a couple of times a week where it takes the top insurance stories and highlights them. The one this morning reads, insurance increasingly unaffordable as climate change brings more disasters. So this is uh, very topical for insurance companies, for insurance regulators, and for individuals. At the end of the day, a risk is a risk is a risk. Is climate risk really any different? Can we apply traditional risk management techniques to climate risk? I believe that generally traditional risk management techniques work, but the risk managers do have to keep on top of the science. There's a whole industry inside the insurance industry, uh, catastrophe risk management, and a lot of insurers do their own modeling for catastrophe risk, but they generally use catastrophe risk modelers and then tweak those models to reflect the book of business that they have. And those modelers I've just watched over years and decades now how that modeling has gotten more sophisticated and it changes based on the most recent experience and put it in their algorithms and then can run new models. And so nonetheless, I mean, as you suggest, and as climate change scientists say, the frequency and severity of these risks is growing. And that's always a problem for insurers. If they understand the risks extremely well and know roughly how often those risks are going to you know, manifest themselves, then they can budget and manage that risk very well when they are unsure about how often and how severe a risk is. And if that frequency and severity is changing in a negative way, then that is uh, more problematic for insurers to to manage. It's frequent that I'll read a financial 10K report from a major company or something. It's not uncommon to see that they'll put a natural disaster risk into force majeure acts of God or you know some other catastrophe that is beyond planning. Is climate risk, do you think, a force majeure act of God, or is it now starting to become quantified that it's getting priced into the portfolios? I believe that climate risk, as it manifests itself in severe weather events, has already been priced in over time. The question is how that how that price changes over time. And that's the problem, I think, for insurers and for regulators as well as for individuals. And that is, what do we know about how many more hurricane scenarios are we going to have this year over last year? You know, there's a lot of science involved, but it is very much art over science when it comes to how many of those hurricanes are going to actually make landfall in the United States. And when they do make landfall, are they going to hit a rural area or a uh, populated area? I was reading some of the risk managers have looked at Hurricane Laura that just hit recently in the Louisiana coast. And they they said, well, the, the losses would have been oh so much larger had it actually hit a much more populated area such as Houston or New Orleans. And those are things that we, we don't really know. I will say the climate science is just getting better and better, and the prediction powers are getting better and better. It is something that I think over time that the industry will be able to manage. Yeah, I was talking to one of the other podcast subjects, and she mentioned how in her line of business, when they were trying to forecast into the future for climate, they actually didn't look at NOAA or NASA data. They looked at actuarial data because they felt like that was very rigorous in terms of trying to quantify these future climate risks. That makes sense. Actuarial data is obviously more backward looking. And one issue is climate scientists generally look at how these events will affect a whole region, whereas insurances, they, they really care about how an event will affect a region where they have 
placed insurance. Let's just say for the sake of argument, if you have a big forest fire in a state forest or a national forest, that is a, a big problem, but it is doesn't necessarily reach to insurance because in, insurers generally insure houses and uh, people's property and individuals' property is not found in state or national forests. That gets to the point that the insurance sector is actually highly diverse with the types of insurance and we know that climate risk is also highly intertwined, talking about Hurricane Laura coming through the uh, Gulf Coast just a couple of weeks ago. There's property damage, there's life damage, there's auto damage, there's all these different damages across these multiple insurance disciplines. What are some manifestations of climate risks into everyday life that insurance is involved in? First and most clear is property casualty damage. So if you park your car out on the street and a tree falls on it because the there was a tornado in your area, that's a manifestation of the kinds of property damage that someone can face because of a severe weather event that may have have to do with with climate change. And certainly, you know, the climate science shows that tornadoes have become more frequent and their footprint has grown. Same with hail and same, obviously, with wildfires these days. So that's the first. There is more and more focus, I think, on how climate change may be affecting health insurance. For example, there is, I think, pretty documented that there are more and more people who have asthma. And is that a climate-related event or not? Uh, the science is, I think, not definitive on question like that. Also, there has been some uh, focus on a new vector-borne diseases, like when uh, the Zika virus began to creep northward and all of a sudden found more, more activity in places like Florida, where it had not been in the past. It had stayed south of there, as I understand it. Those kinds of questions have not really reached, I don't think, really being material for a health insurer, although I, I understand health insurers and life insurers are paying some attention to this, but mostly it's property casually because of severe weather events. Going to that survey of insurance companies that the national committers have been doing, has there been any insights that have come out of that in terms of the number of companies paying attention and incorporating climate risks into their policy making decisions? There's some companies that take this, I would say, more seriously than others. And so you will see some companies' descriptions, uh, their answers to the eight questions are quite voluminous, and uh, others give very perfunctory answers. So I will say we, we hope to learn more about kind of just generally uh, how these uh, 420 or so uh, companies have been answering these questions over the last 10 years because of the greater interest in this. We have two organizations that are doing an analysis of the answers that companies have provided uh, right now. And those, those two are the American Academy of Actuaries and a, an organization that's part of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners called the Center for Insurance Policy and Research. Both hope to have their analysis completed by the end of the year or the beginning of uh, 2021. And uh, so I look very much forward to the greater attention that organizations like that are putting to this survey so that we can see a little bit more, so we can see trends of where companies are focusing more and what they are saying. Yeah, and it's great to see that those survey data is actually publicly available online. I was clicking around the website and able to read the answers to all of these eight questions that you're talking about. Exactly right. They have been there on the California Insurance Department's website and have been since the beginning. So if you want to know uh, how Company X answers this question and how they answered it in 2009 and how they are answering it this year, you have a chance to anybody can go online and and look at that data. Let's look at critical mass of data. You said there's about 420, 450 or so companies are reporting to this climate survey. And nationally, there's nearly 6,000 insurance companies based on the Insurance Information Institute. What do you think is critical mass to be able to move the market? I think the companies that we have that we already capture 
is critical mass. We believe, we're not sure, but we believe that the companies that report today represent about 70% of the property casualty insurance market. So all the big ones are generally already captured. And I should say, even though we have only 420 or so companies out of 6,000, I think we capture the, the lion's share of it. Now, does that mean that a smaller or regional company that is not captured does not need to worry about climate change? Absolutely not. If you think about insurance companies that have gotten into trouble with climate-related events, uh, I would point to the uh, Camp Fire in California in 2018, the one that burned down the town of Paradise, California. There was one insurance company called Merced. Its risks were highly concentrated in the town of Paradise. And so it went insolvent because it had not distributed its risks geographically. So there's one specific example of a smaller company just doing what it's doing in an area that it considered to be relatively safe that been faced with tremendous problems because it was too concentrated in an area that one could reasonably say was affected because of climate change. You know, you spent some time at the Hartford, many years at the Hartford, also working on climate-related issues. How do you see firms treating climate risks similarly or differently than the regulators? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that there's a lot of daylight. The insurance companies are also, they also want to stay solvent and they also want to uh, continue to provide uh, for their, to their policyholders. I suppose the one big area is when insurance companies realize when they, they cease collectively that maybe they had underpriced a risk then, of course, what they want to do is say, okay, well, going forward, we want to price for that risk, or we look at, at the whole array of risks that we uh, have in our portfolio, and we just think this area is either geographic area or lines of insurance is no longer in their risk appetite. So they want to get out of that line of business. And the problem regulators then face is if a number of them get out of the same kind of line of business or the same geographic area at the same time or want to raise their prices, that that hurts the consumers in the state. And so there's a natural tension uh, for insurance companies wanting to withdraw from markets when they decide that the risk is too high and the regulators saying, well, hold on, you know, you've been You've been providing for the in this market for many years, and now just in one flash you want to depart. That's not good for the consumer. So the, there's that natural tension. Yeah. So there's two interesting points that comes up that I want to tease. One of which is that role of the regulator and the companies. Again, the companies need to be able to stay solvent by appropriately pricing the risk. But yet, if the premium goes up too high, the insurance becomes affordable. The regulator comes in and says, no, we need you to lower the price and whatnot. And so in some ways, is it trying to take a risk in a particular area and spread that risk over a much larger pool so that way there's no single stressor or shock that brings down an entire company, an entire sector? In some cases, one insurance company says, well, my risk appetite has changed and I want to uh, withdraw from this kind of uh, market because we it just doesn't, we're not going to follow that anymore. And at the same time, another insurance company, one of these 6,000 says, you know, we think we're good at that. We want to get into that market. And so um, much of this going back and forth when companies change their risk portfolio is pretty seamless. But in a case where all the insurance companies are pretty much agreed that the risk has gone up and they no longer want to be there, that's when it causes a problem. And I think a lot of times the that problem is solved in one sense by sometimes creative solutions and sometimes just over time that the maybe the regulator says, you know, you want a 10% increase this year. We don't want you to put in a 10% increase or you want a 50% increase. We don't want you to put in a 50% increase, but it, it would be acceptable to put in price increases um, that go up over a greater period of time to give the market the ability to kind of absorb those kinds of changes. So that's that I would say the temporal 
aspect is is one that is is key to making sure that insurance markets stay healthy. What I find fascinating is how similar this process is to the setting of utility rates, where the utility rate is looking at the cost of providing electricity to a large area for 30, 50 years, and they're taking that cost and spreading it out over that 30, 50 years across the entire population. And the commission is there to guard against absorbent increases in rates, essentially, to make sure that the rates are prudent to be able to recover the cost to keep the uh, utilities functioning. Yeah, I do think that there is some similarity. One unique feature, obviously, of insurance is that almost all individuals buy their insurance year by year. Now, the insurance company, I think just generally, if they like the individual or the company that they are insuring and feel that they're prudent and all, they want to stay on that risk because they want to continue to offer that and and not give that insurance uh, premium to a competitor. But what disrupts the market is when all of a sudden there is a greater recognition that in this particular geographic area or this particular kind of insurance that outside of climate change, I'm thinking of, say, cybersecurity, that really just jumped onto the uh, screen of um, of most companies and regulators, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago when there was a lot of cyber crime. And so what insurance companies that thought they were getting a good price for, they realized that the downside risk of that was way bigger than they thought. And so that created a tremendous amount of turbulence in that market, for example. An insurance company withdrawing from a market. And I think this is a really interesting point because we forget that if insurance didn't exist, there might not be a market for other people to participate in. So could you elaborate a bit on what is the consequence of insurance withdrawing from a market? That should signal to everybody involved that from the insurance perspective, the risk of staying there continuing to offer that kind of insurance at those kinds of prices is just too great for the company. And this is a a conundrum and a problem that I think we've been dealing with a lot as a country and, and, well, the world has. And you see it now more and more, for example, with certain areas with regard to getting flood insurance. Now, flood insurance is kind of unique in that inside the United States, there is not much of a commercial market. So almost everyone goes and buys flood insurance. They might buy it from their own insurance company, but the risk is held by the U.S. government. But what about those properties that get flooded maybe three times in a decade? Those properties are you know, not economic for the flood insurers, and that's in this case, the U.S. government. So the U.S. government has been offering insurance that does not cover the full risk. Well, I think you're seeing more and more that there is more appetite. Up until very recently, people would say, well, you know, this is my house and I'm not moving. But more and more, I think after Sandy and other places where the flood has been particularly bad and, and people have, you know, they made a decision, well, this may not be the right place to rebuild. Uh, so ultimately, I think the insur- the price signal for insurers is a pretty good signal about where people ought to build and where they probably shouldn't build. You know, and that's a really good example of places that the insurance industry exists and existing business practices already exist. When we start talking about going back to TCFD now, the opportunities and the transitions into a new economy, those are going to have to be new markets and new opportunities that currently don't exist. What do you think is the insurance sector's role in that market transformation of creating those new markets? Let's go back to what you talked about on transitional risks and how those might affect insurance companies. In many ways, the biggest way that it's going to affect insurance companies is in their portfolio, their investment portfolio. I think insurance companies manage about $5.5 trillion of investments. U.S. insurance companies do. And so how they, how they invest that $5.5 trillion does make a difference. And I think what looked like a very risky investment in an immature market 15, 20 years ago, such as renewables, that market has matured. And uh, I think the results oftentimes every bit as good as any other market and sometimes outpace the market. So I think you're seeing more and more where insurance companies are at least looking at 
you know, I think regulators would encourage them to look at ways to invest where they harden their investment portfolio against climate change and the way that prepares them for this transition that I think is away from fossil fuels and uh, more toward renewables. What about the new products that are coming out? To give an example, the green bonds, which was a subject in series one, that was a new financial instrument created in the late 2000s. And yet there has to be insurance to underwrite a green bond. But when you're doing it for the first time, how does an insurance company come in and say, yes, we can accept this level of risk and underwrite it at a particular you know, cost? Yeah. And I would say just in general terms, insurance companies, those that are either publicly traded or are mutuals, they are generally not the early adopters of any kind of technology or investments that that would be considered new or untested. I think the way they operate and I think the way that regulators want them to operate is to be careful and prudent. So they've got to, they have to be convinced that a new investment strategy is the right one. So I think you saw, for example, with some of these investment products that would have been considered by at least some in the market to be more exotic, they were funded by private equity and not by big publicly traded companies. Things have moved along far enough so that I know there's a huge cottage industry among asset managers to help all financial company services companies, anybody who's investing very large chunks of money to figure out how to do it in a way that is prudent and also helps manage this transition risk uh, to a low carbon economy. It's interesting you mentioned private equity a moment ago, underwriting some of these riskier new ideas. Insurance is at the end of the day, just one component of the entire financial sector. And the financial sector also does their own risk management, internal risk management. Do you see a difference in how the insurance sector approaches risk compared to the investment in the financial sectors? Insurance companies, because they absolutely have to have money ready that's in cash, ready to pay out for losses, that uh, for claims that people make against the company, for example, they are much more likely to invest in fixed income so that they know in five years' time, they after they've invested for five years, that they will have this amount of money. That behavior is behavior that exactly that insurance, comp- uh, insurance regulators want to see because they want to know that the company is ready to has the the funds available to pay out. So much different from, say, a bank that might invest in something and know they may not get a payout uh, for a longer period of time or finances something. Insurance companies are investing in mostly in in either bonds or or uh, fixed income assets where they can be relatively assured that they're going to get a payout in a certain period of time so that they can pay their claims. Where do you see innovations within the insurance sector? Or is that first the the innovations are first vetted in the rest of the financial sectors before insurance will take a look at it? Well, I should say there is a whole new area called insure tech. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of technology that goes on. Any insurance company is a big data company. And one of the things that they have become very, very good at over time is to know, you know, how much risk a certain individual presents to them. And they share this under a certain way. All insurance companies have access to uh, loss cost data from across the country. So if you own a blue late model car of a certain size and you garage it in a certain zip code and you drive it so many miles a year, all insurance companies have access to that data and would and can price pretty well. They've really gotten pretty good at figuring out what the likelihood is that a person would put in a claim and for how much it would be. So the specifics about insurance and what the risks are uh, have gotten very, very detailed. I will say, you know, with big severe weather events that we've been talking about with climate change, I think that's still much harder to do. But if they they would know if a wind event hits a certain city and the wind is going to be this much, they already have a good idea about how much they're going to have to pay out because they know they can overlay that wind event with the risks that they have. So they know 
which buildings they've insured and what kind of insurance that they have. And if they, they can look at and figure out, well, the, that building is, was built to, designed to withstand a you know, 120 mile an hour event. And if it's 150 miles an hour, then they know that there's going to be greater damage. So there's a lot of data that goes into insurance companies. When it comes to their investment portfolios, I think that they're always, they're always working, but they, they use a lot of, they have their own experience on their investment portfolio. And then they generally have some kind of, uh, they may use advisors to help them with those investments. You know, when we start talking about the insurance sector as well, there's the the regional insurers, the national insurers, but there's also reinsurers. So there's many different layers in terms of size and scope, both in geography and markets. Do you see what a particular area, a particular level of that hierarchy more attuned to climate risks than others? Yes, I think the larger they are and the greater geographic scope they have, probably the more attuned they are to worldwide risks like climate change. And I would put reinsurers in that category first and foremost, probably. Reinsurers are insurance companies, insurance companies. So when an insurer looks at the risks, they've had their people go out and sell this kind of insurance and that kind of insurance and have built up a, a various, over time, they look at their risk and they've already beforehand figured out, well, our appetite for this kind of risk is so much and that kind of risk is so much. And when they realize that they've gone over that appetite or are about to go over that appetite, then they sell part of that portfolio oftentimes to a reinsurer. And uh, so reinsurers generally, they hold worldwide risk. A big U.S. company probably doesn't follow a typhoon in Japan or a uh, heat event in Europe because it's not going to affect them that much. But reinsurers, they, they are highly attuned to any big climate event that affects their portfolio because they've probably bought some of the, those policies that represent that risk. So I would say reinsurers, just generally, as I've watched this over the last 15 or so years, that reinsurers are highly attuned. The big primary insurers are are next. And then, you know, regional and smaller insurance companies, generally, that's not the first thing that they're concerned about. One of the things I find fascinating is that in most sectors, sustainability and green is really a grassroots effort. Whereas from the insurance sector, it seems like the larger, more global player you are, the more exposed you are to climate risk. So it seems like it's coming from a grass tops point of view instead of a you know grassroots point of view. Yeah, I would say there's a little bit of both inside any company. I think companies, big companies or small companies as well, they they are reflective of their own employees. And what I've noticed, having been involved with building a sustainability effort inside a big publicly traded company is that once you give people the opportunity and say, geez, we'd like your help on climate change, you get all kinds of effort because people love to be able to say, well, when I go to work, I get to, I do these things, and but I also, my company is doing the right thing by getting involved with these good projects, and I have been empowered to do things like, I mean, I watched at the Hartford, we had People build community gardens, people do more recycling projects, commuting by either bicycle or public transportation. There was all kinds of ideas. We put in electric vehicle charging stations and and hosted events on the company grounds to try to get in the state of Connecticut to get more people interested in putting in electric vehicle charging stations to build the infrastructure needed to get away from fossil fuels. And for every, uh, as many employees as you have, you have that many ideas for how the company could become more green. So Prachi Vakaria, one of our guests, has a question that she would like to ask you. And this has to do with how the insurance sector underwrites new risks that are coming down the line, especially as new technologies become available. And specifically, she asks, when we start looking at autonomous vehicles, AI driving autonomous vehicles, and how the person is no longer touching the wheel and running the uh, automobile, if something happens, if there's a crash, 
how does the insurance sector determine who's now responsible? That is a million-dollar question, if not a multi-billion-dollar question. It's very interesting to me that the insurance industry, we talked about, yes, insurance companies are prudent and careful by nature, but that doesn't mean that they don't stay on top of the newest technology because they are all interested in getting that part of the business that will come about because of AI. They have been watching this for at least 15 years. The answer is, I think, that has not yet been determined because it's unclear. There is no person uh, who is responsible. Then who is responsible? Is it the company that made the the car? Was it a problem with the road? Uh, What happens when there's an accident between someone, you know, in a transition phase, somebody is driving a car who has an accident with somebody where the... uh, a machine is driving the car. So I think all of that will needs to be sorted out. Insurance companies are watching it very carefully because when they go to insure uh, autonomous vehicles, they want to make sure that they'll be able to make money and that they will be able to go to whoever it was responsible for the accident. But I do think here's the bottom line is that I think something like 94% of all auto accidents are human caused. So if you take the human out of it, I think the number of accidents over time, once they figure out this technology, will drop dramatically. So insurance premiums should drop dramatically and the roads will be safer once we get to that, you know, kind of end state, whenever that is. It sounds like at the moment, no one is responsible, but that will get figured out through contract language from the retailers, from the insurance language as they look at the contracts and try to decide the cost of underwriting, probably the legal side as well, the justice side, to make the decision of whether someone was truly responsible or not. I think exactly right. I think the courts and what how the courts decide over time will probably be a decisive factor as well. But that's uh, it's going to be fascinating. And like I say, insurance companies have watched this. They've been having seminars. They've been having speakers at the National Association of Insurance Commissioners and lots of other places for well over a decade now. So I think insurance companies will be will be ready to offer the insurance when it gets to the point. And there must be some data points already because, as you know, companies are in trial phases. So there are many thousands of AI vehicles already that are on the road. And so there must be a small but growing body of, of evidence for how this is going to how this is going to shake out. Tell me a little bit about your work with Commissioner Mike Kreidler at the Washington State Insurance Commission as well as your work for the National Insurance, NAIC. I'm privileged to uh, have this job as Commissioner Kreidler's climate policy advisor, and it is kind of a unique position. I would say I was the first person that I know of in the NAIC of any insurance commissioner who had just a single person designated to climate change. Since then, the California commissioner has a person as well as the New York superintendent for for insurance. So it's, a, I think, a potentially a growing area. Mike Kreidler has been a leader on climate change inside the National Association for Insurance Commissioners for a, a long time. He chairs this, now it's called the Climate Risk and Resilience Working Group, and he has chaired it for over 10 years. And he, along with a select group of other insurance commissioners some 10 years ago, created this climate risk disclosure survey that I've talked about, made it a requirement from their individual state perspectives. One of the things that we do is we meet, this working group meets and has met in person three times a year. And so we build an agenda for what we're trying to kind of highlight. For example, Uh, We've talked about TCFD. We are interested in seeing if we can get those companies that are required to report uh, using this climate survey, if they already do a TCFD report, we would much prefer to have that. So we've gone out and last year we had one company, AIG, submit a TCFD report instead of answering the eight questions. This year we've got a, a few more 
we want to build on that because we want to encourage the insurance companies that already do the survey to do a TCFD report. So that is one big area that we're working on. Another is we talked about how insurance regulators look at the financial condition of insurance companies. Some five or eight years ago, in the financial condition examiner's handbook, they added some questions on climate change. We want to re-look at that, see how often these questions are asked, see if we can improve the questions and improve the kind of highlight for financial examiners from each of the states when they look at insurance companies that are resident in their states, see if they want to look more carefully at the questions that get to what we've been talking about, and that is how climate change affects their portfolio. These are some of the ways that Commissioner Kreidler uses his working group to kind of advance and encourage insurance companies to be at the cutting edge of climate science. For your entire career, having worked in climate and touched on climate for uh, such a long time now, what brings you optimism about climate action that you've seen as a long, decade-long trend? Uh, Like so many other people who are seized with these questions, I'm optimistic about the greater level of interest I see and the more and more uh, activity that I see. Uh, But my big question is, will it come soon enough? (laughs) And uh, I must say, just watching how just the last few years, how the financial industry generally and the insurance industry in particular has, has focused more and more on climate change, this question about talking about climate change inside big insurance companies is no is not political at all. It's really tied to the health of the company going forward. And the fact that TCFD is getting more and more attention and you're seeing what's happening internationally, that international effort is also putting pressure, I would say, on regulators in the United States and on insurance companies in the United States to do more. One example is just very recently, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners has decided to create a task force on climate change. Now, a task force in NEIC has a greater visibility than a working group. And it's interesting because this task force will be co-chaired by the California Insurance Commissioner and the head of NEIC, who's the insurance commissioner for South Carolina. So the two of them will chair. The task force has 26 commissioners who said, we want to be involved with this. So that's just an example of how climate change and insurance, how the interest in that has just grown rather dramatically inside the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. On the international side, I mean, here's another place where there's been tremendous growth. Commissioner Kreidler was among, he and the California commissioner were two of just a handful who several years ago created an international group of insurance regulators focused on climate change. It's called the Sustainable Insurance Forum or SIF, its acronym. It started out with seven or eight insurance commissioners. It's now over 30. It's got a pretty robust agenda that we contribute to. Uh, One of the things that it has been doing, and I've been part of the drafting committee for this, is doing a paper that when it's all completed, will give the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, this is the big worldwide group of insurance regulators around the world, They're looking for guidance on what individual supervisors ought to be doing in their own country when it comes to climate change. We've drafted a roadmap that any supervisor can use to say, when you look at insurance companies, these are the questions you should ask. These are the areas that you should focus on to see if the insurance companies in your your country are doing what the standard is internationally uh, for regulating insurers on climate change. Well, we look forward to reading it once it's out. You know, with all this activity going on globally, both at the very top level, policy level, all the way down to the grassroots level, where do you turn to for new information? I'm happily on lots of different uh, email lists and also through the the association with the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, the Sustainable Insurance Forum, 
I feel that we get a lot of the most recent uh, ideas. And then just talking uh, with insurance companies and those especially that are leaders and saying, well, what are you doing? What do you think we should do next? What can we do next? And also talking with my peers inside the regulatory community. So I, th- I think having worked on this issue for a while, I've got a lot of ideas, some of which are good, some of which are not so good. And I continue to test those. Historically, it's been reading and then going to conferences and hearing. And now those conferences are virtual. So still hearing about what the thought leaders in this area are thinking about and, and moving forward on. And, you know, some of these efforts take wide range collaborations. Are you working on or with anyone uh, as a collaborator that would be considered unexpected or surprising? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, I just find uh, find people who are like-minded, who are smart and thoughtful on this. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, there's one contact who I developed. I went to give a talk a year and a half or two years ago now, I guess, in, in New York. And a person who represents a very large asset manager started up a conversation. And, and I get a lot of insights on what big financial services companies are doing and what insurance companies could do more uh, through discussions with people like that who've thought deeply about this, who have some experience, and who are willing to share. So I don't think my circle of uh, thought leaders that I go to would be a surprise to anybody, but it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty wide sometimes. When you mentor early professionals, what challenges do you see them facing and what do you advise them to do? I love to talk with young people. It's almost always young, younger people than me, but uh, people who are either contemplating a new career or are already in a career and want to move forward. What I find is oftentimes people are, they are fixated on uh, specifics rather than thinking about, well, it's taking a step back and saying, this is what I would like to see if I can make happen in an organization, be it a government or a nonprofit or private sector. I'm constantly finding myself saying, when people say, well, I want to work on a climate change related issue or a sustainability related issue, I point out that there are precious few jobs that have that in their title. So what I encourage people to do is to join an organization and then once inside the organization to show leadership by saying, geez, this is very interesting what our company is doing, but you know, we could be more sustainable if we did this or that. And either joining a group like that or actually just in your everyday life at your desk, looking for ways to get to where you think the world needs to get. And so you can do that in oh so many ways. And I think people, they attach too much. Well, the job description is this and this is and and so I am confined by doing just what's in the job description. I find that if you are creative, get some backing from your from your leadership, you can look at that job description in a way that helps the organization tremendously and also helps you build credentials that you want on, say, working on, on sustainability issues. That sounds great. Don't be confined by job descriptions. I think that's a really good nugget. Exactly. Well, Jay, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversation. I very much enjoyed it, Jimmy. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Thank you.